Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 1. Now, those of you that are uh, a regular part of Crosspoint, you're nervous right now because for the past uh, long while, we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and we're actually in chapter 14, and now you're thinking, oh my gosh, are we starting back from the beginning? No. Relax. Breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. We're going to look at two verses this morning in the first chapter of Romans that I think are a, a summary of the most important news that every single person on this planet needs to hear and know. And so I want to use these verses in Romans chapter 1 as a, as a kind of mini Bible in whole to explain the greatest news in the universe. I think that if you're visiting with us for the first time today, I'm really glad you're here. I think you need to hear this news. I also think that if you've been a Christian for many, many years, I think you need to hear this news afresh today. I think this never gets old. I think that this is not just a one-time piece of information that you need to hear and believe. I think it's something that you need to cling to daily, no matter how young or how old you are, whether or not you grew up in church, whether or not you've believed this for six days or 60 years. I think we all need to hear the good news of what God has done to make people right with himself. So I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. My name's Brad. I didn't even introduce myself. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. By the way, last Sunday we had that little postponement because of the weather. We met in the evening, and so there was a, a little lighter crowd here. So I want to mention it again. This past Wednesday, actually April 17th, was the 14-year anniversary of us starting together as a church. So happy birthday, Crosspoint. Oh, man, that was like, oh, yes, well, that's very nice. Hey. It was a golf clap. <laughs> Praise God for 14 years of grace to us um, and his kindness to us. Let me read Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Uh, we're doing this morning what we do every Sunday. This is a Sunday that our culture, uh, for I think good reasons, remembers in particular the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. It's the epicenter of all human history. It's the most important event in the history of all things. But we do this every Sunday. What we're doing this morning is not particularly special. It's not a, a unique little thing that we're trying to do to get you to stick around. Uh, we, we preach through the Bible every Sunday, and we always think about and celebrate and consider the implications of this good news that we're going to talk about this morning. So let me read verses 16 and 17, and, and then I'll pray, and then we'll work through. And there's, there's, there's four statements, four truths that are embedded in these two verses that I think explain the whole Bible. So let me read verses 16 and 17. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of Christians in the city of Rome in the first century. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Lord, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that inspired men through centuries to write this word. Thank you for this Sunday morning. Thank you for April 21st, 2019. Thank you for 14 years together as a church. Thank you for the beautiful things that you've done through us, in spite of us. Thank you for our other Bible-believing churches in this city. Thank you for St. Andrew's Presbyterian and Berean Covenant and Westminster and Calvary Baptist and Morningside Baptist welcoming their new pastor soon. Thank you for them and thank you for Winbrook. Thank you, Lord, for Evangel Temple. Thank you for Piney Grove Baptist. Thank you for our sister church that, that sprung out of this church last summer, Midtree Church. Thank you for the gospel that's being faithfully preached there in Harris County. Lord, we confess that we because of our frailty and because we don't understand all that you have for us, we are tempted at times to try and adorn your gospel. We, we, we're tempted to, to make it temporarily relevant to us as if it can help us navigate through life for some temporal joy better. And certainly it does those things, but Lord, there's something so much more important, so much so much more eternal, and it's how can people be made right with you? And that clear, simple, unadorned good news of the gospel is what we need to hear today and every Sunday. So help us think deeply about it, I pray. And I pray for my friends that are in this room who don't yet trust and believe in this message. I pray, God, that they would by your grace, that you would open their eyes so that they can see Christ, your son, and what he's done, that you would give them a new heart so that they can believe this truth. And for my brothers and sisters in this room who who are already trusting in this message, who are already putting their hope in Christ, Lord, today make us more like your son. Conform us into the image of who you want us to be more so that we can walk in more joy, so that we can be used by you more fruitfully, so that we would bring more glory to your name. I pray that you do all these things for our good, for your glory, and for all those that you will save today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The good news of the gospel, in fact, this word gospel is a word that we may hear a lot in our culture. Maybe you've heard it a lot in, in church life in the past or just amongst friends. That word literally means the good news or the proclamation of the good news. It's a, it's a set of facts that is being stated, heralded, proclaimed. And in this text, the Apostle Paul is saying that he's not ashamed of this good news. And the rest of Romans is Paul's explanation as the Holy Spirit inspired this man almost 2,000 years ago to write this letter. 
It's his explanation of what the good news is. But I think even in these opening verses of this letter, we see embedded in these two verses a kind of explanation of that good news and what the whole Bible is actually about. So I want us to look at at four phrases in this text, that what the good news is about. The first is this, is that the good news is and about our salvation. It's for our salvation. We need rescuing, in other words. We need to be saved. The gospel is not about how you can merely live life better here on this earth. Although, if you live according to God's word and you live in submission and belief in the gospel, it will, in an eternal sense, certainly make your life better because you'll be walking in obedience to God, but it's not primarily a kind of pragmatism about how life can be lived more successfully in a temporal sense here. It's about, just as the word implies, salvation. We need rescuing. The Bible's utterly clear about that. In fact, all the way at the beginning, we won't take the time to flip there, but in Genesis chapter 3, after God creates the whole world, the whole universe, out of nothing, he creates mankind, Adam and Eve, our first parents, and puts them in the garden and gives them a command to steward his earth, to be his image bearers. But he tells them that there's one tree that they should not eat from, and and yet they do. So God has created them with the capacity to obey him, but he's also given them the capacity to disobey them. And that's a mystery that we don't fully understand, even though we see it in the Bible. And Adam and Eve, our first parents, whom all of us, we may speak different languages, the, 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 the level of pigmentation of our skin may be different, but all of us descend from these two people, Adam and Eve, and they sinned, they rebelled, they disobeyed God. They, they disregarded what God had told them to do. And the Bible is very clear about what they did in the garden. It calls it sin. Listen to what that sin then brought into humanity, into Adam and Eve's world, and into all that would come from them. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin, as transgression, as disobedience to God's good, right way, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so, so think of this with me. Just think of what this verse is saying. We spent a, a long time considering this, oh, I don't know, about a year ago when we were in Romans chapter 5. What this text is saying is, is that Adam is a kind of figurehead, a literal historical figurehead. He's a fountain of all of humanity. He's the first, and he sinned and rebelled. And now everything that comes from him is tainted, is polluted with sin. So think of it like a fountain that has been tainted with, with, with dirty water. Now everything, that, that fountain is the source. Every bit of water that comes out of that fountain is going to be dirty water. That's what this passage is saying about humanity. And we are all, we all have participated in this because our our father Adam is whom we all have descended from. Just like children look like their parents in a physical sense, 
We all look like our parents spiritually. We have all inherited their DNA. And this sin, it has brought death. What does that mean, that, that sin has brought death? It means that we are separated from God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of. They were excommunicated. They were sent away from God's presence in the garden in the early chapters of Genesis. And that separation from God who is life is spiritual death. That's where mankind is. And the Bible is utterly clear about this. Back to Romans chapter 1, it says that because God is holy and good and righteous, he's also just And so disobedience, in order for God to maintain his holiness and justice, disobedience must be dealt with justly through, the Bible calls it, God's wrath. And in Romans chapter 1, one verse after we opened up reading in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, in verse 18 it says that the wrath of God, the right judgment of God's holiness is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which is all of us. So I know you're thinking, gosh, Brad, I I came this morning to (laughs) be encouraged. It's Easter. Grandma's got a roast in the oven. I mean, come on. I'm hoping you're done by 12. I mean, what, what, you know, what, this is, no, friends, the good news is not good unless we understand what it is saving us from, right? And so what is this salvation that we need? It's salvation from Sin and death and God's wrath that is revealed against the disobedience of all of us that we've all participated in because we all come from the same fountain. And it applies to all of us, friends. In fact, this is the clear testimony of of later on in Romans in in chapter 3, verse 23. Paul writes this to all humanity. He says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us. Now, you may be tempted to think, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as the the other guy. Well, that may be true in an earthly horizontal sense, right? You, You may not be as bad as somebody else. But that's not what we will be judged by. That's, the, Bible, the Bible's not concerned about that in an eternal The Bible talks about our unrighteousness not based on how we compare to other people around us, but how we compare to God's holiness. And think about that. You may think, well, well that, that doesn't seem fair. Think about how, actually how fair that is. It actually levels the ground for all people. Because if... If unrighteousness were to separate us from God in a kind of earthly horizontal sense, and there was some way that people could kind of be basically good enough for God to accept, then where would that line be? Is it the, the terrorist who flies planes into buildings? You know, the murderer, the adulterer, the, the, the pedophile, the, the wicked, wicked person? Just keep going down the list all the way down to the good little grandma who just tells one sort of white lie. Where along that line is, is the cutoff, right? That, that would be sort of ambiguous. Where is it? It's kind of shifting, and, and it's always conveniently just on the other side of where we perceive ourselves to be, isn't it? It's kind of like, uh, you know, none of us are so bold as to say, yeah, I'm righteous, but we are kind of hoping that maybe in ourselves we think, oh, I'm just righteous enough to scoot by. And friends, the Bible is clear. It doesn't even judge humanity on that shifting scale. It says that all of us, all of us, 
whether it seems to be a horrific horizontal sin or whether it is an inward sort of idolatry where we in our own self-righteousness are shaking our fist at God our creator thinking that we're good enough in and of ourselves to stand before him. The Bible calls it all sin and it says it all, it all causes death and we all need to be saved. We're in a predicament then. I think the Bible's really clear about this. We're in a predicament. We are, we are guilty before God. And not only we're guilty, but we're, we're, spiritually, we're spiritually dead. We're unable to do anything about our predicament. In fact, let me, let me just read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says that we're dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world. He's talking to Christians who this was, this was indicative of them before they became believers. And so this is true of everybody who's not trusting in Jesus. This is, this is how all people start. Because of what Adam and Eve, our first parents, did and how we all, in a sense, participated in that because we flow from that tainted fountain. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. I think that's a reference to, to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of us, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that means everybody. I think when he says, like the rest of mankind, unless we're thinking, oh, well, what about, no, not, not just everybody, everybody, everybody. That's what that means. <laughs> the rest of mankind, everybody. And so we're all, we're all in this predicament. And, and here's the deal. Here's another implication of, of sin and spiritual death. Dead people can't do anything to make themselves alive. They're dead. They're dead. So we're, we're in a predicament, and we need, we don't need like some medicine to make us better. We need salvation. We need to be brought back to life. That's the good news of the gospel, and so we need salvation for salvation. What's the next phrase? It is the power of God for salvation. So now we know that whatever this salvation is, it's something that God does. He does it all. We're saved. This salvation comes by the power of God. So what is the power of God for salvation? What, what does God do? What is, what is God's power exercised towards us in our predicament that makes it able for us to be saved? Well, the Bible is, again, utterly clear about that. Even in Romans, Romans chapter 3. Listen to this, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, which I think is, is one of the most important paragraphs ever, ever written. In fact, it's so important, and this type is so small, I need my glasses to read it. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, what, what I think Paul is saying there in a kind of modern way of saying it is that the way that a person can be made right with God, the way a person 
can be made righteous. You know, that's our biggest problem. We're dead. God's holy. We're sinful. We're separated from him. And so because of our unrighteousness, God's wrath is upon us. And so how can unrighteous people be made righteous? Well, now the way of God making people righteous has been, has been displayed, has been shown apart from the law, which is the Old Testament, which was this beautiful shadow. It was a beautiful shadow that was pointing to something. But it was just a shadow. So all of these Old Testament commands, as glorious and as beautiful and as true as they are, were mere shadows that were pointing to something. And what they were pointing to is the gospel. Although the law and the prophets, it's kind of a shorthand way of saying the Old Testament, bear witness to it. And what are they bearing witness to? Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Or not only the holiness of God, but the way that a person can be made righteous by God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and how are those sinners made right? How are they justified? They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, listen to this, verse 25, whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood. You may not be familiar with that word, but fear not, I'm going to explain it to you here in just a second. As a sacrifice, as an atonement, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so what is this paragraph saying? It's saying, again, that we're all guilty and there's no way we can be made right with God, but God, as his whole Bible in the Old Testament was pointing to, has made a way through Jesus, his son. Now, who is Jesus? Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. No beginning, no end. The Bible is utterly clear. Even in the first chapter of Genesis, we see God referring to himself in the plural. Let us make man in our own image. And so we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, no beginning, no end, creating all that is. And in the fullness of time, Jesus... Truly God, fully God, God the Son, becomes a man. He takes on humanity. He becomes a person just like us in every way. Jesus becomes a man. And he lives where all of us, remember, we're all descendants of Adam. And we have disobeyed God in various ways, maybe different from each other, but the same result, separation from God. Jesus comes and is God in the flesh, truly God, never stops being God, but becomes truly man, fully man. And where we have all disobeyed God, Jesus as a man fully obeys God. He does everything that God says you should do according to his Bible, the Old Testament, the law, all of the commands that God gave his people. Jesus is the one true human who obeys all of them righteously. So Jesus is perfect. It's really, really important for us to understand. He becomes a perfect man. And then he lays down 
this perfect sacrifice, this perfect life, this righteousness on the cross, not because he needed to be punished, because remember, he committed no sin, but as a substitute, as a sacrifice in our place. That's what this word propitiation means. It means that God put his own son forward for us so that the punishment that we deserve, Jesus would take on the cross. And because he's perfect, because he's not only a righteous, sinless human, but he's also the eternal holy son of God, his righteousness on the cross, his death on the cross is enough to satisfy to atone for, to extinguish, to remove all of the wrath of God that was against us. Friends, that's what's going on on the cross. It's, listen to me now. It's not merely a sign of God's sort of like, you know, sweet love for everybody. And you see these pictures of, of Jesus and he's blonde hair, blue eyes. Looks like, looks like a Bee Gee from the 70s. And it's just so soft. And he's just, friends, yes, God loves you. But before that, God loves his holiness and his glory and pours out his wrath, his judgment, not on his people, but on his son, who is not just a sweet, kind man who loves children, but is the holy, righteous, sinless son of God, eternal son of God, truly man, truly God on the cross, who bears and satisfies and extinguishes the wrath of God for his people. That's, that's what that word propitiation means. It means the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus that extinguishes God's wrath and turns it into favor for all those that will believe. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So do you see that? That God the Son on the cross is satisfying the holiness of God the holiness, the righteousness, the wrath of God for us. And what's going on on the cross is Jesus is, is bearing our wrath. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. It's a really important verse. It says that God, God the Father, made Him, meaning God the Son, who knew no sin, to actually be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see what's going on on the cross? All, theologians, all the way back in the 1500s at the Protestant Reformation, came up with this, this phrase to describe what this verse is saying. They called it the great exchange. That on the cross, Jesus is, he's taking our sin and the punishment that should have been ours, and he then is giving us his righteousness. Because in order to be reconciled to God, we need more than just our sin forgiven. We need, we need to be righteous. And Jesus takes the sin of his people 
and he bears the wrath that was for it, and he gives them, he, he actually makes, declares, justifies his people through his work on the cross by becoming a man like us and being tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. So he is, he's our, here's a word, here's a good word to describe it. He's our mediator. You ever been in an argument? <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> and has, has anybody ever kind of arbitrated, been a go-between between you and the person that you're in an argument with? Well, sin has, has separated us from God, and, and God's wrath is against us. We're, we're in an argument that, we have, that we're completely at fault with, with God, and the Bible describes Jesus as, as our mediator. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says that. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so picture this. You have, you have this holy triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's righteous and good and holy, and has created a world that he knew would fall. That's a mystery. I understand that. That's hard to understand. But don't be put off by things you can't understand. You're not God. You weren't meant to have complete understanding. So, so that's, that's a little, little, little rabbit trail, little rabbit trail. Friends, so many people are, are I, I think unnecessarily put off by things that they doubt and don't understand when they read the Bible as if they should have complete full understanding of all the mysteries of the universe. Friend, you're a human. You were created and you, you are subordinate. You're not infinite. So if there are things that you can't understand, if there are things in the Bible that perplex you, yes, you're not God. And so, so, in fact, I think some of our accusations against God is a direct consequence of the fall. It's, it's, it's like sin. We're like shaking. I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. You're a lump of dirt that he breathed life into. So I'm not busting your chops. I'm just saying consider maybe a little more humble track. That's all I'm, that's all I'm saying, okay? All right. Rabbit trail over. Back to whatever I was, what was I saying? He is our mediator. So he is God, God the triune God, creates a world that he knows will fall. I know that's, that was the rabbit trail. I know that's mysterious. Hard to figure out. And God, the triune God, sends a person of the Trinity. God the Father sends God the Son to become a man to understand, to identify, to sympathize with that creation, but perfect, and then to lay down his life because none of this created could atone for its sin because it's fallen. And so the perfect becomes one of the created, maintaining his perfection, and then bears the wrath of God on the cross to reconcile, to satisfy the justice of God. So think about this. Think about this. We are saved by God from God. 
Your greatest problem isn't like, you know, the lack of the ideal American dream or your greatest problem isn't even like, like the devil. Your greatest problem isn't whoever's president or whether or not your husband's going to get deployed or whether or not he's going to, all those things may be important, but your greatest problem actually is a holy, righteous God. And the only person that can satisfy God, the creator, is not anything created, but he himself. That, that's what's going on here on the cross. Jesus becomes our mediator, and he can represent both sides because he's God, so he can represent God, but he can represent us because he's also truly man. The Bible says in Hebrews that he is not somebody who's unacquainted with our weaknesses. He's not distant from us. He enters into the brokenness of our humanity, yet without sin. That's a mystery. I understand it. But Jesus comes, and he identifies with us. So friends, if you feel far from God. The good news of the gospel is not that you need to make yourself to God, but that he made himself to you through Jesus. And Jesus mediates, reconciles his fallen brothers and sisters to God. But friends, he didn't just die. He, he, he rose again. He, he got up from the grave. So here's, the, here's why the good news is actually so good. Is it's not just that Jesus died and satisfied God, but he reversed the effects of death. He reversed the effect of sin. The effect of sin is death. And Jesus, by not just dying, but getting up from the grave, reversed the effect that sin had on humanity when it entered humanity because he defeated death and the grave. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. It says that, it says that Jesus died for our sins. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll have it on the screen. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, but he didn't stay in the tomb, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So all of that Old Testament, remember we talked about how the Old Testament was a shadow pointing to Jesus? It's pointing towards, in fact, the Old Testament is full of, of allusions, of references, of shadows, of signposts pointing to the resurrection. And Jesus gets up from the grave. That's why Peter can say, 1 Peter, let me read 1 Peter chapter 1, that the whole reason that you are saved is through the resurrection of the dead. Put it up there on the screen, 1 Peter chapter Chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. I got pages falling out of my Bible. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So think about what that verse is saying. Remember? You're spiritually dead. 
But because Jesus has not only merely died to satisfy the wrath of God, but because he's come back to life, because he has reversed the effects of your spiritual death, if you will trust in him, because he resurrected, based on that, your spiritual death can be reversed and you can be born again. You can be made alive. And what does it talk about when you're being made alive? Of course, you're alive right now, but there's inside you're dead if you don't know Jesus, and the effect of that sin can be reversed. So not only is the punishment for the sin being satisfied, the effect of the sin is being reversed because Jesus got up from the grave. Now, we could talk, it could be a whole separate sermon talking about just evidences of the resurrection in the early church. And you may think, oh, really, somebody got up from the grave? I know, I know. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that foolish? In fact, the Bible itself says that this message is foolish to the world. 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross, the good news that Jesus is God, you may be thinking, this is so irrational. I know. <laughs> I know. It is. It is. That's why Christianity doesn't work if you try and make it all rational and fit into just eight tips to make you a better leader at Synovus <laughs> or Aflac or in the army or whatever, right? It doesn't work like that. It's not a rational thing. It, it certainly has rational implications that have all sorts of helpful, but at its core, this fallen world looks at what I'm saying right now and says that is irrational and foolish. And the Bible is so comfortable with itself, it admits it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, I won't take the time to read it, it says that the foolishness of what we preach this gospel is folly to this wise world. And I think we could put air quotes around wise world. I think Paul is saying that this world is wise in its own foolishness. Do you see kind of the, the sarcasm of, of what he's saying there? It's irrational to this world, but this world is fallen. So... It's for salvation. It's God who does it. And it's to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. And I think that means that you must believe. You must believe. Romans 3. We just read that beautiful chapter. Look again at verse 22. It says that the righteousness of God, or the way that a person can be made righteous, comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, remember there's that beautiful word, as a propitiation. And how is all this applied? How, how is all this actually land? How does this come to fruition in your life to be received by faith. You must believe this. You must, you must, you must, you must cling to this 
yourself in order for this to apply to you. It, it, it's not a universal salvation. It's not just like if you're a decent American and you love the military, you know, and all, I'm just, man, I'm, I, I praise God, you know. No, no the, there's lots of people who think that they're right with God because they consider themselves to be basically decent human beings. I, I, I hope that I discounted that folly, fault, faulty mindset. Who, who is made right with God? Who's rescued? Who's saved? Who is the power of God applied to? To those who believe. To those who have faith. To those who, who trust, who put their hope for right standing with their created God, creator God, not in their own righteousness, but in what Jesus has done on the cross by faith. Now, if you've been tracking with me, you may sense a kind of dilemma right now. You may sense a dilemma. And I, and I, and I want to point this dilemma out because I, I think you're right on. Here's the dilemma. You said, wait a minute, Brad. We're dead in our sins. We're dead. How can dead people have faith? Right? I mean, dead people don't have faith. So you're saying that we must have faith. We must trust in Jesus. But spiritually speaking, my heart's not beating. My eyes are blind. My ears are closed. How can I have faith if I'm spiritually dead? I, I can't do it. You're right. And this is what makes the good news of the gospel even gooder. <laughs> More good. Gloriously, scandalously good. Listen to Ephesians. Listen to Ephesians. Listen to what God does in salvation. Hear me on this. The good news of the gospel is not, is not that you must decide to stir up, gin up in you faith. And if you have enough faith, then God will be pleased with you and meet your faith halfway and apply Jesus's work to your life. That's not it. You know what that's like? That's like, that's like the high school boyfriend going to the fair, to the county fair, and he's trying to ring that bell with that hammer and touch it to the top so that he can get the big stuffed animal for his girlfriend. And is he strong enough? Is he, you know, all of his friends are watching. Is he strong enough to hit that thing so that it goes all the way to the top so that he can get the big stuffed animal for his girl? And oh, he's almost there. Hit it again, Johnny. Hit it again. Friends, that's not what the gospel calls you to. The gospel says you're, you're so dead, you can't even pick up that hammer. You, 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 don't, even, you, you don't even know which way is up, so, so you have no chance of ringing the bell. And listen to what the gospel says to that. It says, remember what we read in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, about how we're all, er, everybody, everybody, dead? Remember, we're dead, we're dead. Dead people can't ring the bell. Dead people don't bring anything to God except their deadness. They don't bring anything in them. So, how can dead people believe? I'm glad you asked. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, listen to this, verse 5. 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So what's that verse saying in, 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 in our, in just, just, Bare bones, it's saying that when God, when God saves a person, he doesn't, he doesn't make salvation possible for them if they in their deadness will respond. Friends, this is really good news. When God saves a person, he brings them back to life and he actually gives them the faith that he requires of them. He takes a dead person and he breathes life back into them. They're born again. They're made new. They were dead. Now they're alive. And part of what he gives a new heart is faith. And now we are alive. Now we can see. Now we can grab the hammer and bang the bell through. That's what faith is. It's picking it up and it's banging it and beholding that Jesus is our hope. So friends, right now you may be thinking a thousand questions. Well, does he give it? Friends, we're reading about a sovereign, a sovereign, untraceable God. This is the way he saves. He's not leaving, leaving any inch in the corner for you to take credit for it. He, when he saves a person, he makes them alive and he gives them faith so that they can behold Jesus. Friends, this is really good news. Because if right now you're thinking, gosh, man, this place is serious. They read out of the Bible. That guy's shouting. The person who invited me, I'm going to have to next time decline the This is crazy. Friends, if you have been sold the false gospel that the way that you're made right with God is through self-improvement, you will never get there. But here I think you're hearing the biblical gospel that the way God saves you is solely, merely, by grace. It's something he does. He does it all. He makes you alive. And now the faith that you must necessarily exercise, yes, no one is saved apart from them trusting in Jesus. But what I think this text is saying is that that faith that you have, that you must exercise in Jesus, is a consequence of something that God already does in you. It's not something you bring to the table. And do you see how freeing that is? Do you see? Because right now, if you're saying, I, God can't save a person like me, that's ridiculous. Nobody is more spiritually dead than anybody else. If you're dead, you're a candidate for God's grace. And God, in his kindness, brought you here today to hear this. And I think, remember we talked about being the power of God? God may be using my feeble words to awaken faith, to awaken new birth in you so that you can hear and turn and trust. What's he doing? He is making you alive. So what should you do? You, 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 should, you, should, 
trust. You might think this doesn't make sense. Seems like a paradox. God does all the saving, but I must believe. You might be thinking, there's tension there. I know. I know. But don't, 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 the Bible uses this analogy. Don't be like a lump of clay shaking your fist at the potter saying, what right do you have to command me to believe when I can't believe? You know what right he has? All the rights to do that because that's, and he, and he's so good that when he saves a person, he actually gives them what he requires of them. Friends, that's really, really good news. This last phrase, this fourth thing that I want us to see in this text, let me stop here. So, 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 so I'm pleading with you right now. Like right now, what, am I, what, is, what is this text calling you to do? It's not calling you to, to commit to self-improvement, to, to try and be better. You can't in and of yourself. You're dead in your sins if you're not a believer in Jesus. What's it calling you to do? Well, I think that if you have ears to hear this, I think that's an indication, a very strong indication, that right now the Holy Spirit is, 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 is bringing you to life. Right now, you're, you're in the, forgive the analogy, but I think it's a biblical one, you're in the birth canal of the Holy Spirit. You're being born again right now, man, come on. You're about to get spanked on the butt, and you're going to breathe, and you're going to trust in Jesus. You're, you're right now, you're, you're coming through the birth canal of the Holy Spirit. You're being born again. You're being born again. Don't be a fussy baby and fighting. Be born again. Turn, trust in Jesus. Come on, come on. Do you think the gap between earthly doctors and parents is wider than the gap between the sovereign creator and you and your spiritual birth? Come on, you're going to fuss and you got questions? You're being born again and you got questions as to how all this thing happened? Oh, come on, come on, come on. I mean, I'm being, I'm being a little silly here, but I'm pleading with you. I got questions too. Try, do this. Turn away for once from trusting in yourself and your own fallen, created, rational logic and put your hope in this glorious, miraculous news that God can make you alive. And if you're hearing this right now, I think that's evidence that God is is causing you to be made alive. So breathe, trust in Jesus, look to him and say, you know what? I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to stand before God. This Bible's telling me that my only hope is to trust in Jesus. So I'm going to go with that right now. Believe that. Believe it. Believe it. He will not disappoint. He will not not answer that cry. Because if you're crying that cry, he made you, he put the air in your lungs, spiritually speaking, to be able to cry it. The righteous shall live by faith. I think that's the last thing that this text is telling us. Your, your life, your life really matters. You might be saying, the righteous Oh, that's for the really religious people. No, here's the, here's the, here's the glorious news. 
is that when God saves a person, their unrighteousness is given to Jesus, and he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's removed. There is no now, therefore, condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And now his, his righteousness, his perfection gets applied to us, even though we're still working out our salvation here on this earth. And so who are the righteous? Not the really, really religious people, all those that are trusting in Jesus. The righteous Christians, believers in Jesus, no matter their state of sanctification at this moment, shall live by faith. So that means, I think, that that our lives matter. God leaves us here to live this life so that we would make much of him. And what does this life look like? I think it's it's a spirit-filled life. Not only does he save you, not only does he forgive your sins, not only does he make you alive, he comes in, he dwells in you. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 12. It says, so then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For you live according to the flesh, that's the way you live. Before you were born again, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all. Listen to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So, so what happens is that God's spirit comes and takes up residence in you. Now you're alive. His, his breath of life comes in and you're, you're led. Something is now true about you. God lives in you. I think it's a family life. Let me keep reading. Verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, so it's a family. It's a, you're adopted into a family. And I think that family is lived out in the context of the local church. If you're, if you're believing this news, you need a local church. You need, you need Christians to do life with. You don't need just Easter morning. You need Sunday after Sunday. And friends, this is not me busting your chops for showing up on Sunday on Easter. I'm glad you did. But I, what I'm saying is, is that the Christian life is not meant to be lived in these one hits. You know what we're going to do next Sunday? We're going to do this... Say, somebody else is going to be preaching. I'm going to be in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Somebody else is going to preach about this same glorious good news. And it's not going to be as maybe experientially feel good because we're not going to be wearing our Easter colors and it's not, you know, uh, but it's, it's what you need. It's what you need. You don't need mere experiences. You need the rugged life of doing life in a family. And guess what? I think you need to be part of a church. Maybe this church or some other Bible preaching church. And guess what? When you're part of that church, it's going to be hard because you're in a church family with a bunch of other people who are still working stuff out and Christians are whack. Every family is whack, right? You are. Not not every Sunday is a Sunday like this. You need the regular rhythm of ordinary Sundays with ordinary people. You need to walk by faith with a bunch of people who are hard to walk by faith with who are going to fail you and offend you, that you fail and offend, because as you do that, God puts you together and he sands off the hard, jagged edges of our life. And as we do life together in ordinary, unspectacular, unawesome ways, God makes us more like Jesus. 
So I think it's a church life. It's a Bible-centered life. God has given us his word. It's a lamp unto our feet, the psalm says. And it's a Godward life. In Romans chapter 12, he says that, verse 1, he says, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, as you live this spirit-led life in the family of God, the local church, based on the glorious truth of the Bible together, you give yourself to something greater. You walk by faith for God, and he uses you for his glory and your good. Friends, that's glorious good news. I think you need to be saved if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, I think you need to remember your salvation. And I think all of us need to be reminded or maybe hear for the first time that the good news of salvation is not that we save ourselves or cooperate with God, but that he does it all. Yet, you must believe. And when you believe, he does something supernatural in you. He makes you new. He dwells in you. He puts you in a family. And he says, go bring glory to my name through the way that you do ordinary, everyday, unspectacular life with these people. And, and that actually is far more spectacular than anything this world has to give. Friends, will you believe this? Will you consider this? Will you trust in this if you came into this room not trusting? I, I, I'm not going to in this moment ask you to bow your heads and try and get you to do something. I'm, I'm asking you to, to believe this. Believe this. Say to Jesus, say to God, Father, I have sinned against you. My only hope is trusting in what you have done for me through your son's life, death, and resurrection. Forgive me. I put my hope in him. Say that in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own words to God. Say that now. Put your trust in him. And before you leave this room today, speak to somebody that you know to be a believer and tell them that you have done this. Maybe write it down on the connection card. Write it down on something and put it in a little black box in the back and we'd love to follow up with you. But do not leave this room today without considering that. And I pray believing that news. And if you have already believed this, Friends, don't just say, boy, I wonder, I hope somebody, I hope somebody that I brought believes this and her. Friends, will you be freshly amazed at God's salvation for you, that he rescued you, that he did it, that he gave you faith, and that he calls you to make your life about him and not yourself. Will you, a fresh friend, fellow believer, give your life as a living sacrifice to serving God in everyday, ordinary, unspectacular, yet glorious ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. This is, 
This is what I need to hear every day. I'm so weak in and of myself that um, I think, I suspect, like many of my friends in this room, I, I still suffer with gospel amnesia. I forget this. I need to hear this again. I need this good news, Lord. And for any friends that are here this morning that have never trusted in this news, that have never trusted in this glorious gospel, Lord, would you, would you do what only you can do? Would you make them alive so that they can believe in Jesus and be saved, be rescued, and walk by faith for your glory and their joy? Lord, I pray that you do this. In Jesus' name. Amen.